Hey everybody, we continue our read-through of the New Testament. Today we are in 1 Peter 3. Peter has laid out the glorious realities that we are a chosen people, set apart by God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, called to proclaim His excellencies, both in word and deed. And he's laid out for us some of those deeds, right? One is by living in proper uh, relationship to govern authorities, uh, in, in working heartily for our earthly masters, uh, for the Lord and, and not for men. And now he takes us to the home and look and calls and asks us what that looks like for us as his exiles, as his holy nation, as his people to live within our homes. And so he begins here with that teaching in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. All right, so here he begins this context of the relationship of the home with wives submitting to their husbands, being subject to their own husbands. That's a key term there. Not just any husband and not just any man. It is a submission to their husbands, right? Their own husband. And even though this would have been a common cultural standard of the day for wives to be more submissive in the household, to be subject to their husband, Peter grounds this subjection not into the culture. It's not because it's a cultural thing. You don't do this because everyone else around you is doing it. You don't do this because you uh, your husband demands it. You do this because, look at verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God adorned themselves by submitting to their husbands. Why do you live this way? Peter says he wants to make this very clear because your hope is in God. Your love for God leads to this kind of action for your husband. One, because if he's a believing husband, right, he will be honored, God will be glorified, and you will lift him up to his place of proper leadership in the home by doing these things faithfully. Secondly, if he's not a believer, we're told that it is through this conduct this conduct of proper modesty, of quietness, of gentility, of pure conduct, of faithfulness to the Lord, this hope in God, that it's this conduct that God is pleased to possibly use as the means to bring that person to salvation. And so, in either way, the goal of this in your hope in God is to win your husband, either to win them in pressing them to their proper place of leadership, of God-designed leadership, or two, by possibly literally being the means by which God uses to win them to himself. And now, Peter gives something shockingly countercultural. Whereas men were just expected to just be, get the subjection and submission from their wives because of the culture. He radically changes that and says, no, 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 husbands. This is how you actually will submit to your wives. You'll submit to them by living in an understanding way. Right? Listening to them. Hearing them. 
uh, caring about what it is that they have to to think and say, really taking into account their wisdom and their knowledge and their feelings and emotions and thoughts and all of these things. Take them fully into consideration when making decisions for your family. A man who does not heed the wisdom of a praying wife, of a loving wife, is a fool in and of himself. Secondly, he's to show honor to her as the weaker vessel. And this is primarily referring to physical strength, right? Not any kind of moral, spiritual, or mental ability, right? It's just talking about the fact that because he is a he is the stronger, that physical discrepancy naturally found in the physical strength provides one reason for the special consideration that a husband is to show his wife love and honor, not not harshness, not not being angry and upright like, that, like that's that's cowardice to try to use your your stature to impose your will upon your wife, but rather to honor her, to love her, and to lead her in grace, right? And in your relationship to your wife is a key means of of serving your spiritual life, which is why he says there, so that your prayers may not be hindered, right? The call is to to live in such a way that that solid marital relationship leads also to a proper and solid spiritual relationship. Verse 8 through the end of the chapter. Finally, all you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit." in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and as the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so now the instructions have been turned to the church at, via, via, via basically a wider society. How is the church as a whole to live within society? The believer's attitudes and postures should be characterized by harmony, sympathy, love, and humility. They should not allow hostility of the water culture to provoke them to retaliation. They must not repay evil for evil, but instead repay evil with blessings. Such a, a difficult task but one that God promises with blessing himself. Responding to hostility with kindness is the only way in which this holy minority can survive in an adversarial context. 
as Psalm 34, verse 12 through 17 proves. Such behavior is filled with God's promise of blessing. And Peter adds an important element. Christians need to be ready to offer a public defense for the hope they possess. Yet, as always, the medium is the message. The defense must be made with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. People must be won over, not just with arguments, but with an example. Because that's what leads to the defense itself. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. That means there needs to be hope in you. A hope that that isn't characterized by the way the world hopes and the world thinks and the world believes, but a different, a radical hope that caused the world to say, where does this hope come from? And that is when we are to be ready to give a defense for the hope. And the defense for the hope is the glories of Christ. This is all rooted in the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is precisely what Peter gives us in verses 18 through the rest of the chapter. Jesus, as Messiah, died a substitutionary and atoning death, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. But at this point, Peter then introduces, I think, one of the most perplexing Christological descriptions in the entire New Testament, that after being made alive, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So this has been understood in various different ways. Um, it, it could conceivably be referred to the preaching of, a pre, of, of the preexistent Christ through Noah to those bound in sin, urging them to repent and believe. The offer of salvation to the imprisoned spirits who were alive in Noah's day, but now who resided in Hades, so those who lived before Noah, Christ goes, preaches the gospel to them. And then the third uh, kind of interpretation has been that this refers to the risen Jesus going and announcing his triumph, his victory over the imprisoned wicked angels of Noah's time, telling them of the judgment still to come. The third option I actually think is the most likely, that this is a picture of Christ's triumphant proclamation over the fallen spirits, which sought to corrupt humanity and thus fully and forever estrange it to God. This corresponds with a well-known motif in which rebellious angels were held in a place called Tartarus, there that, that were for prison, ahead of final judgment, which would in turn foreshadow the judgment of all human powers who opposed God and God's people. This tells us that in many ways that, that what, what, what Peter is doing here is he's offering comfort to this community that finds itself suffering under wickedness and, and, and persecution. Because of the victorious resurrection of Christ, all forces of evil, both human and cosmic, are now under the lordship of Christ. So, so take heart, no matter how difficult it may seem and, and how many losses you seem to to take in this world, you live in the victory of Christ who has triumphed over all darkness and the baptism that we have been brought into. Baptism, which which is a, a picture of us having been carried through the flood by Christ in redemption and belonging to the victory of Christ. Our baptism, which corresponds to that, that good conscience that we have trusted in him and received his cleansing, received his forgiveness, received his protection, and received his victory. Baptism, which corresponds to that, 
now saves you. Not the act of the baptism itself, but the nature of what it corresponds to. That is a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? An appeal to God, that is faith in Him and what He has done to us to give us the victory of Christ. That is the baptism uh, that saves us, that baptism which corresponds to that. Here is the grand reality, the closing uh, thought here in this, this picture, the chapter before we move forward, is that in the midst of the world, we have been called to do difficult things for the Lord. That the things we are called to do, submitting to governing authorities at times is very difficult. Submitting to earthly masters at times is very difficult. Um, marital relations between a fallen wife and a fallen husband, that, that though we are even redeemed, we are still sinners. Those are so hard at times to get right. The call to live rightly towards the world and not repaying evil with evil is so hard in the midst of it. So so what is the primary power that moves us and that causes us to live faithfully for the Lord in light of these commands, which do not make them burdensome to us? The answer is the knowledge of the victory and salvation of Christ. The victory and salvation that we have in Christ. Living in light of the victory and salvation we have in Christ enables us, empowers us to faithfully live for Him in all situations, doing hard things for His glory that many might be one to the glorious hope that is found in Christ alone. This is the defense we have for the hope that is in us. Christ saves and Christ is victorious. God bless.